Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. All right. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this uh, book discussion with Robert Zellick. I'm Richard Fontaine. I'm the chief executive officer at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, we're really pleased to have Bob Zellick with us this morning to talk about his his new book. Uh, Bob is a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University uh, at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he previously uh, served as president of the World Bank, uh, as U.S. Trade Representative, as Deputy Secretary of State, and has held a series of other senior posts in government and the private sector. Uh, and most relevant uh, for today, he's now the author of uh, this new book, which I'll uh, pull up here if it comes through. Uh, maybe not. Um, America and the World, a History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Uh, the book's a sweeping account of American diplomacy. It starts before the founding, and, and it's told through these profiles of key individuals and moments throughout. I've read the book myself, and I find it really a truly masterful account uh, that tells not only the story of U.S. foreign policy, but also draws out the distinctly American characteristics of our nation's diplomatic history. So I'll get the conversation started here in just a minute. Um, and later in the discussion, we'll be taking questions. So if you have a question or if you have a comment, put it into the Q&A box you'll see on your Zoom display. And uh, you can note that a video recording of the event will be available later today. Uh, and with that, Bob, congratulations on the book and welcome. And let me just start pretty simply. Why did you write it? Well, Richard, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for uh, the CNAS for uh, hosting uh, this event. You've got a great institution, so I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about some of these topics. Um, well, probably like many people in, in this audience, um, a number of years ago, I read Henry Kissinger's book, Diplomacy, and I enjoyed the way he used history to talk about diplomacy and foreign policy, but I always had a sense it was written somewhat from a European perspective. So for a number of years, I've been trying to think, how could I talk about some of the ideas in American experience uh, that distinguishes our diplomacy? So as you mentioned, the approach I took was to, to use stories about people and events. So I thought for people who like biographies, you have a series of mini biographies here. But I also work in the notion of, of practical problem solving. So I'm trying to share a little bit of sort of my experience as, a, as an official uh, in the U.S. government. I think one of the other ideas was that, again, probably for some of the people on this call as well, um, I took courses in diplomatic history early in my life, and that's a field that is somewhat faded. Uh, and for good, understandable reasons, at least, uh, history has tried to draw in underappreciated groups and, and, and themes and, and ideas. But it's led to somewhat of a fragmentation in the field and uh, a lack of attention sometimes on the political history of decision making. I was struck that uh, Fred Lokoval, a professor at Harvard who's going to have a great new biography out about John F. Kennedy, said, why have we stopped teaching political uh, history? So uh, this is a way a nudge for diplomatic history. And in particular, insofar as the subject is still taught, it tends to focus on World War II and what follows. And as you see, Richard, there's, I believe there's a lot to be learned from the first 150 years of American history. And in particular, one thing that is also relevant is, you know, the experience for most of us and uh, kind of fits uh, a point that I, I saw former Secretary of Defense Mattis make recently where he said, gee, the United States may no longer have total domain dominance. And I was thinking, well, in history, the U.S. often didn't have domain dominance. So how do you, how do you get things done when you're not necessarily all powerful? So that's what I try to do in a book that um, recognizes some of the intellectual frameworks that people have put together over time, but tries to uh, instead focus on the practical problem solving and the people that, that do it. Well, let me um, just follow up on that. You go back, actually, even before the founding, because you talk about um, the way that the, that the founding fathers were able to work the diplomacy so as to uh, make success in the Revolutionary War more likely rather than less, among other things. 
Um, and, and as you note, as you just said, and you note in the book that the diplomatic history field has been pretty neglected in recent years in terms of what's being published and things like that. But why reach back to the 18th century? I mean, this was, you know, in the 18th century, we were all about avoiding entangling alliances. It was 13 fractious states hugging the Eastern seaboard. You know, the, the Northwest was Ohio. Um, you know, why that, why is that stuff relevant now? Or, you know, to put it slightly more ruthlessly and to quote a, a student in one of my courses at Georgetown that once asked, um, what's the point in learning this stuff that happened so long ago? It's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked that. So <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I, I start with Ben Franklin and uh, there's a wonderful colorful story uh, that begins for those of us that like history and biography, but I'll, I'll let people read that. So instead I'll, I'll look behind the story. Because if you look at the, the case of Franklin, what do you see? Well, one, you see the challenge of moving from war to peace. And that's not a problem that was only uh, in the 18th century. That's one that we're still sort of dealing with today. And even the challenge of from peace to a reconciliation with the parties. And in the case of, of uh, the, the, the Revolutionary War, we also, Franklin wanted to come out with a good relationship with both Britain and, and with France. Um, second, um, there's the issue of a diplomacy when you have a weak hand, which it's quite interesting to see how Franklin and his counterparts use the limited leverage and power that they have. Third, uh, Franklin turns out to be probably the first proponent of public diplomacy. When he goes to France, no one understands the United States, but Franklin is famous. So I explain how he used that with French society to kind of develop this image of the rustic philosophy. And you can see it. I put in the photos of the artwork of, of Franklin uh, in Paris, as opposed to when he's in Britain, when he has sort of a, a different posture. He's also, as a former printer, pretty good, however, at using the press uh, for parodies and, and humor and other uh, sort of aspects. Um, it's a case of negotiating with your own delegation, which I'm sure, Richard, <laughs> you've experienced over time and other people on this call. Um, Franklin has a very good relationship with John Jay. Uh, with John Adams, he, he makes this famous quote about saying, always an honest man, often a wise one, but in some things and in some circumstances, absolutely out of his mind. And Franklin has to then sort of deal with the French with that context. He has allies in Congress, and in this case, they're connected because the French have gone to the Congress and said, the US delegation should only agree if France agrees. <clears throat> and Jay Adams and Franklin all agree to ignore that, to do a preliminary treaty uh, with Britain. But then uh, Franklin has to clean that up because in part, um, they're gonna need another loan from, from the French in the process. Um, timing, a key issue in terms of foreign policy. So early in 1777, when US is looking like it's got its back against the wall. One of Franklin's colleagues say, look, this is the time to tell the French, you know, you're in or you're out, right? And Franklin says, well, maybe let's wait. And so they wait until they have Saratoga and they have a little bit of a victory. There, there's also things to learn about methods. So <clears throat> one that is critical as a negotiator, and you've probably seen this, people often overlook, is you have to keep your eye on what is the major accomplishment, the major objective, because it's easy to get diverted in different contexts. There's the use of espionage. So what's wonderful about this incident after Saratoga was that Franklin basically lets the French know he's reaching out to the British to create a little leverage um, on, on the French. And then after Yorktown, he uses uh, indirect contact with the British to establish the first uh, sort of uh, negotiation because he knows so spies are watching. Uh, and one that I love that both he and Hamilton emphasize, which is to recall that even small gestures can make a huge difference on great people and, and big events and understanding sort of that connectivity. Um, the, the other point, however, for peacemaking that it is just is wonderful is that near, near the end after they signed the treaty, uh, Henry Lawrence, who is the father of John Lawrence, who appears in the Hamiltonian production, uh, says to Franklin, boy, don't you think that Congress and the United States will be very grateful? And Franklin makes this very wise statement about saying, look, I've never seen a peace treaty where somebody isn't complaining and taking shots, so blessed are the peacemakers, may refer to the next life, not this one. And there's a wonderful codicil to that. The Congress goes to the French, 
and says, do you want to issue a complaint about this, how the, how the delegation has handled this? And the French representative replies, great powers don't complain, but they feel and remember. So all those are wonderful aspects about today. And uh, I mean, just the next chapter is Alexander Hamilton. And there, it's a story of economic statecraft. And that's something we're still living with today. Um, the, the quote about um, blessed be the peacemakers and where the reward will be reminds me just a little bit of uh, my former boss, John McCain. Every time something bad was about to happen, but didn't because of the efforts of someone, he would always remind them that their reward, reward would be only in heaven because, you know, no, no, very few people get credit for avoiding something bad that didn't happen. You know, it's of course the, the opposite. So let me um, uh, draw you out on a guy uh, you profile at length in here, William Seward, uh, who most people don't think about it. If they do, they know that he bought Alaska and that's about it. And maybe they heard Seward's folly turned into be wise. That's about, that's about all they know. It's, it's really striking um, the combination, well, one of longevity of career, but also uh, vision and, and persistence um, and the way he shaped uh, American foreign policy for quite a while. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about who he was and his impact on foreign policy. <clears throat> so Seward was a, a governor and then Senator of New York. Um, he was one of the leaders of the new Republican Party. He had a stronger anti-slavery position than Lincoln did, and he was a competitor for Lincoln uh, for the nomination of 1860, uh, having, having lost out. Um, he's uh, obviously uh, one of the figures in Team of Rivals, which is a way that brings the Lincoln sort of team together. And it's quite touching how he starts out obviously being somewhat dismissive of Lincoln. In fact, uh, early in 1861, as uh, eight, in April, he almost sends a note to Lincoln that says, sort of, why don't you let me take over this uh, sort of this operation. But they developed quite a bond and friendship. I think it's partly humor, it's partly shared political experience. But the reason that I really enjoy this chapter is there's lots of books about Civil War battles and generals and social movements and slavery, very few about the foreign policy of the Civil War. But yet if the British and French had intervened, it would have been all over. So the question was, how do you <clears throat> avoid foreign intervention? And from the start, uh, Lincoln and Seward kind of have their back against the wall because the outgoing Buchanan administration, it basically accepted the notion succession, secession was gonna occur. Europeans expected it to occur. So they, the Lincoln and Seward have to walk a very fine line. On the one hand, um, they need to put out a notion of threat so that to realize a recognition of the Confederacy would not be costless. On the other hand, they have to be quite disciplined because in Lincoln's world, world you only wanna have one war at a time. So I talk about some of the incidents in late 1861, kind of the effort, what, what we would call today was uh, humanitarian intervention that uh, Europe was considering to stop this terrible bloodletting. Um, the role of the Emancipation Proclamation, which interestingly enough, at first Britain dismisses and this is where a sense of history is useful because they have Indian mind. <clears throat> they have what they call the Indian mutiny of 1857. And they say, a servile insurrection? This is a terrible idea. But then Lincoln and Seward work the British public opinion, this famous letter to the laborers of Manchester, and start to build an Anglo-American sort of public opinion over time. There's also work with Mexico because at this time, France is, has, tries to put Maximilian on the throne. Um, the Juaristas, Benito Juarez, wants the U.S. support, but the U.S. very wisely says, we have to win this war <laughs> before we help you with yours. So they, and they don't want to antagonize the French so that the French recognize the Confederacy. So in Seward's words, they, they concede nothing uh, and they negotiate nothing away. They keep their principle. Um, and then after uh, the Confederacy is defeated, Grant sends General Sheridan down to the border. In his words, he said, you know, to show the French kind of the notion of neutrality in the British and French sense of the word. But, but Seward doesn't want another intrusion into Mexico as we'd had in the Mexican War. And so he manages to maneuver to sort of keep the pressure on the French without necessarily uh, sending U.S. forces uh, in the process. But then, as you mentioned at the end, the, after Lincoln is assassinated, what people fail to appreciate is that in this era, the notion of the Union was almost a mystical concept. And as, as you mentioned earlier, remember after 
Jefferson and Washington, we're, we've got to avoid permanent alliances or entangling alliances. So they're looking at various notions of what we today would call international relations. And the notion of unions, confederation, different arrangements, they see as a, as a possible model. And for Seward, he sees the United States as a potential commercial center, and he sees the magnet of the United States. He's one of the first people to talk about a North American Union, not based on conquest, but based on a new Mexican Republic, a new Canadian Confederation, understanding their, their common interests. And then, of course, as you mentioned, he's known as the peaceful expansionist because he purchases Alaska. What I point out is he, he also tried to get British Columbia, which I, I was a near miss. Um, and he, uh, he gets Midway Island, uh, which obviously ends up being quite important in World War II. He wants to buy the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, can't do it, does a trade agreement, which eventually sort of leads to the, the sort of uh, accession of Hawaii later in the century. He wants to buy the Virgin Islands, which the Congress doesn't go along with, but later we buy in 1970. And to connect it to stories today, he wanted to buy Greenland and Iceland. So he's, he has, and he actually also starts to work with the Colombians on the Panama Canal. So he has this notion of securing the perimeters of the continental United States. But as Michael Green points out in his book about diplomacy with Asia, he, he also, in a sense, does the first uh, un, sort of not unequal treaty with, with China and sees Alaska partly in its connectivity. Uh, with with Asia. So he's a wonderful man for planting seeds of the future uh, that I hope we can recall. That's really, it's an amazing uh, profile of him and, and even the things that he didn't accomplish with the exception of Iceland and Greenland, most of them ended up getting bought or accomplished or, or built in the case of the Panama Canal, even decades after he was in place. And remember, this is, he, this is during Andrew Johnson's presidency when, yeah. when Johnson is, is uh, sort of uh, under threat from Congress about being thrown out of office. Let me uh, turn to another figure you talk uh, uh, quite a bit about, Cordell Hall. And I want to talk, uh, ask you about him in the broader context of um, the economic statecraft, for lack of a better term, that you can see going all the way back to the founding. I mean, the economic aspect of uh, American diplomacy and, and foreign policy is a theme that runs all the way through, sometimes neglected, um, and sometimes um, not even, presidents are not even conscious. When the, when the United States goes from a relatively weak economic power where it has to sort of make sure that loans will be available, that it won't be cut off from things and things, like, all the way to a, 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 a very strong power, it takes a while for the United States to sort of catch up, it seems like, to realize the strength that it has. So you make the point that Woodrow Wilson didn't actually use the kind of economic strength that he had um, when he was trying to put pressure on the Brits or whatever it, during World War I. Um, there's a lot of things he could have done economically, just didn't kind of occur uh, to him. But Cordell Hull comes in, you know, quite a bit later and, and says, you know, his career is going to be devoted to the idea that trade could lessen the risks of war, build prosperity, solidify foreign friendships. You know, it has these sort of strategic level effects. I mean, given the current approach to trade, I think in this administration, neo-mercantilists is probably not an unfair term to how they approach it. I mean, what are the kind of examples that you would give throughout the history of, of U.S. foreign policy that would give evidence for this broad claim that the trade has effects, uh, positive effects for the United States um, that include but are not limited to increased prosperity? So this is one of the traditions <clears throat> that I highlight over time, as, as you mentioned, Richard. And, um, it, and one of the points I'm trying to make is how to see trade beyond the issue of economic efficiency. So it really starts in 1776. Uh, John Adams, while uh, Jefferson is working on the Declaration of Independence, John Adams has the job of coming up with a model treaty for the new United States. It's basically a trade treaty. But recall the context. This is a world of, of empires, uh, an imperial system, and a closed mercantilist system. So what they're trying to create is open markets, not only uh, kind of as a basis of foreign policy, but for private parties. So today, what we would call transnational actors. So I link this to the role of private sector actors in American relations with the world, as well as some of the technology uh, developments. Um, 
in the 1850s, trade is the opening uh, to Japan and the Meiji uh, Revolution. Uh, it's part of the open door that John Hay has with China. And in that context, it's connected with trying to keep China from going the way that Africa went. People often don't make this connection, but if you look at the carving up of, of Africa in the late uh, 19th century, there was a similar effort to try to do that with China. And the United States wanted to keep the territorial integrity instead of an open uh, set of markets. Then, as you mentioned, <clears throat> there was a, I think for Hull, there was a key recognition that after World War I, you had the reparations issues that Germany owed, you had debt issues that Britain and France owed to the United States. The, the circuit wouldn't work unless these countries could sell goods to the United States and earn the dollars that they needed to pay. So this is on his mind. And then of course, in the 1930s breakdown with Smoot-Hawley, where trade levels, depending on volume or price, fall 40 to 70%. The average US tariffs goes up to 59%. This leads to a calamity of a breakdown to autarkic economies for Nazi Germany, for the East Asia co-prosperity sphere for Japan. And so I focus on something called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934, which is the first time that Congress shifts authority to the executive branch to start to negotiate trade agreements. And by the time Hull leaves in uh, 44, 1944, he's got, I think, uh, sort of 31 agreements with 28 countries. And not only do they reduce the barriers, but they establish the principles for the post-war trading order. And so today, that system of shifting authority to the executive branch, which you and I lived through uh, over decades, um, remains a fundamental regime shift, although Trump has used the executive authority not to liberalize, but to close the, the, the system back. And there's also a wonderful little anecdote connected today, which is that even after Hull gets the agreement, he's fighting within the FDR administration, including with a man named George Peake, who wanted managed trade, which sounds a little similar to what we're seeing today. And Peak basically says, look, all these rules, all these regimes, that won't work. He said, what we need to do is basically create a barter arrangement. But he makes a big mistake. <laughs> the country he tries to work it out with is Nazi Germany. And so he's basically working on cotton and wine and not so much uh, so currency. Roosevelt actually approves the agreement because like many presidents, it would allow him to show he's, he's selling goods abroad. And Hall was one of the few people with the political shrewdness to come back and say, well, this is going to allow Nazi Germany not to have to spend its money on trade uh, and therefore spend it on arms. And there's a lot of groups in the United States that don't think so well of Nazi Germany and its behavior. So he actually gets Roosevelt to reverse himself. And then, of course, uh, the story really takes, takes root uh, in after uh, World War II and the principles of the agreements that hold devices become the basis of, of the GATT system. But I also work in a little story there that is worth recalling because people look back in time and they say, oh, well, you know, uh, when the U.S. was so powerful, we could afford free trade. In 1947, when the United States is this economic behemoth in the world, um, the United States is negotiating with 23 other countries to launch the GATT. Congress passes a tariff on wool of about 50%. And the American negotiator, Will Clayton, realizes that with that tariff, Australia will pull out. If Australia will pull out, Great Britain for the Commonwealth will pull out. And then the Europeans say, well, if Great Britain isn't there, why should we stay in this? So he flies all the way back to have a personal meeting with Truman. And Truman gives him 15 minutes, gives the Secretary of Agriculture 15 minutes. The Secretary of Agriculture, and this is the argument you've heard, Richard, over time, says, mm, you'll lose up to seven wool-producing states in the 1948 election. <clears throat> And Will Clayton makes the plea to try to uh, stop the tariffs to allow the GATT to go forward. Truman sides with, with Clayton, even allows him to offer a tariff cut. GATT gets launched. Truman still gets reelected. But it's a story to show the politics of trade are always complicated. But if you think about the Marshall Plan, uh, trade within Europe, the creation of the European Union, uh, Japan moving from a military strategy to an economic strategy. And it had, had a similar idea actually economically in the 20s, which comes crashing down uh, in the 30s. These all become critical parts of the U.S. <clears throat> network, whether you call it formal alliances or others with the world. And equally important, I argue, is the platform for a lot of the other cooperative interactions. 
So if you're thinking about health issues, environmental issues, or others, it's this set of, of kind of rules and, and cooperative networks that create the foundation for the United States. Wanna, um, I have a couple more questions um, at the top, but I wanna um, encourage folks, if you do have questions, stick them in the Q&A box and I'll um, start weaving some things in here. But, uh, but moving forward in time, if you pick up a history of US foreign policy, you normally wouldn't get a chapter on a guy named Vannevar Bush, um, but in your, in your diplomatic history, um, you profile, profile him as a, as a pivotal figure. So why'd you include him and, and why is he important? So Van Eber Bush is the, the godfather of an American diplomacy that leverages perpetual technological change. And so many of us will have studied geopolitics or now geoeconomics. I wanted to work in science and technology, both because I think it was important in the past and I think it's going to be important in the future. And without giving all the details, um, Bush uh, uses his World War II experience to write a report called Science, the Endless Frontier that he maneuvers Roosevelt to ask him to write. And it basically defines American science policy uh, for the post-war period. It develops what's called the triple helix, the role of basic research from the government, universities, private sector. And part of the Cold War story is the competition of that US system with the Soviet system, much more statement. Well, obviously that will have a relationship to the discussion today about China and technology and state-directed systems. But there was another reason too, which is that, you know, I worked on climate change and other issues uh, across different administrations, actually negotiated the one climate change treaty that the Senate has actually passed, uh, ratified in 1992. And I believe there's an interesting question about how you integrate science policy uh, with the rest of the American government. And think of the relevance of that today, not only with climate, but say with pandemic issues. So he's a fascinating figure, uh, and I believe that we're going to hear more about that set of issues going forward. Let me turn to something that you played a very personal role in, that's German reunification. Um, and uh, I wonder what you would put as the lessons of that experience uh, for some of the challenges we have today. And, I'm, and I ask that question not just from a geopolitical standpoint, Germany is a good ally. Maybe it's not a great idea to trash them all the time. You know, okay, fine. Uh, but some of the stuff that you emphasize, not only in this episode in your book, but, but in many of the others, not just the policy, but the mechanics, the, diplom the diplomatic mechanics, the importance of timing, using public opinion, of, of building leverage and deploying it appropriately, uh, building trust and, and relationships uh, with people uh, over time and things like that. So I... One thought is the importance of anticipation. And I distinguish this from prediction. Prediction is very hard in, in policy or other aspects of life, but you can often anticipate trends. So the chapter that I have on, on, on Bush 41 and Baker really just focuses on the early point of 1989, which was this anticipation uh, framework. But second, it's important to put issues in both a historical and a strategic perspective. So in part because German unification went pretty well pretty quickly. I think people have overlooked, we had to deal with what was called the German question as well as the Russian question. So you had this history of after Germany was unified uh, in 1871, the disruptive effect. So how would we deal with the anxieties, uh, not only with the Soviets, but frankly with the French, the British and others about German unification, but also with a strategy of building on the post-World War II architecture. So the importance of unifying Germany within NATO with the, within the then EC, which becomes the European Union. But then on this pragmatic side, you have to combine those big picture ideas with a sense of uh, judgment about facts on the ground. And a key one for us was that the people of East Germany in particular, but on the West Germans, they were gonna create a momentum on the ground. And we integrated that fast based momentum to frankly push the British, the French, and certainly the Soviets to some to come to a resolution. That then connects, how do you do so? And we felt we had to create a process to be able to channel this. That was the creation of the two plus four process. That was the one issue of debate within the administration, actually. Some of our colleagues at the NSC sort of wanted to let events take their course. Baker and I and others at the State Department believed we could use this process to channel it. But then there's always a risk among 
Diplomax with process, that the process becomes the thing. So you had to connect the process with your objectives. And here we had a lot of moving parts, changes in NATO, the conventional forces negotiation, uh, events in the CSCE. So that's the, the practical work of, of diplomacy. Communications with the public. Uh, we were always concerned that if the United States, which wanted to have a united Germany and NATO, were seen as an obstacle to the German public, that that would weaken our position. And on the other hand, we had to assure others in Europe that a unified Germany uh, would not sort of return uh, to the past. We were fortunate, uh, and this is another dimension of diplomacy I always try to emphasize, we had the support of the American people. A wonderful aspect of the decisions of 1989-90 was where others in Europe were anxious. Americans thought, of course we understand why Germans will want to unify uh, in, in a democratic system. Personal relationships. Uh, you and I were talking before, Richard, about the trust relations and things, and the relationships that Bush and Baker built uh, with the Soviets, with the Germans and others in Europe were absolutely fundamental in terms of getting this done. And then timing. As you mentioned, all this happens within about 10 or 11 months. And uh, we were always worried about what would happen to Gorbachev. Uh, by the end of 1990, Shevardnadze is gone. Um, so trying to keep all the pieces moving in an integrated fashion without disrupting things and maintaining public support was partly the art. So I suppose the last benefit is it's always good to have good fortune on your side. <laughs> There's a, um, a PBS documentary we were talking about a little bit earlier, which it came out about a week ago um, called Statecraft, and it profiles the national security team in the George H.W. Bush administration, which it's an hour long documentary. I highly recommend it to everybody. Bob appears in there along with uh, a lot of other folks. Um, and, and to your point, a couple of the things that came out um, specifically with Baker and Bush uh, along these lines, you know, George Schultz was famously always tending the garden with the allies and things like that. Well, George H.W. Bush kind of took that and put it on steroids because he loved being on the phone and he, and he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll call my counterparts and other, other heads of state for no reason other than to check in without an ask. So then when I do have an ask, it's not I'm just calling because I have an ask. It's because we have a relationship. And, and, he, and he put, and of course that, you know, really um, became valuable in building the Gulf War Coalition. And then in building the Gulf War Coalition, Baker would show up again and again and again. I mean, even to Damascus over and over again in order to put into place um, these kinds of things and really put in the time um, that was necessary to build a set of relationships that otherwise just wouldn't exist. I mean, maybe it's a simple lesson in here of don't only call people when you want something, uh, which we could use in any field, I guess. Um, but, you know, it made a huge difference in terms of the outcome. Well, Baker titled his book as Secretary of State on the Politics of Diplomacy. And this wasn't accidental because with this audience in particular, a lot of the skills that you'll need in Congress or with coalitions or others apply internationally as well. I think the other point that many historians have overlooked is that they were focusing so much on Gorbachev and Russia. They didn't recognize that Bush believed he needed to strengthen his alliance base first. People overlook that in 1989, after the, the INF Treaty, the only nuclear missiles left were in Germany. The Germans were saying the shorter the missiles, the deader the Germans. So there's, there's a challenge here, which he used the conventional forces and other negotiations to sort of reestablish American leadership in the alliance, build a relationship with Germany. And where some people see that as a pause, I see it as vital for dealing with the events to come later in 89. We have a question that's come in. Uh, this is an anonymous one, um, but it's a good one. As time passes, which foreign policymakers have seen their legacies enhance beyond how they were perceived at the time? Um, I mean, I guess maybe Truman would be the paradigmatic example of somebody who went out with horrible approval ratings. Now we say, oh, if only we had a Truman out there, uh, you know, but, but in your look, maybe even to make it slightly more pointed, who are the folks that, you know, uh, didn't seem to have succeeded as well as you think now in the course of history they actually have? Well, Truman is definitely one. And I think part of the story there is, um, you know, that in this 1947-49 period, unlike what some people now may assume, this was not planned. This was, in fact, uh, there is a reference I have in the book that in late 1945, a poll of Americans asked how important are international affairs, and it was 7%. <laughs> so if you look at numbers, low, I think it later it rose up to 14 or 
but you have to see these in the context of the time. Truman relied very heavily on delegation and decisions. So the team around him mattered a heck of a lot. And his first team with Jimmy Burns and some others wasn't the team he needed. And so what I try to draw out in that chapter is kind of the team he builds with Marshall and Atchison and uh, Will Clayton and, and others, but also given your experience with the Congress, the key role of Vandenberg. And this I think will be important going forward. I, I spend some considerable time talking about how Vandenberg worked with the Congress uh, to sort of help the US policy. You saw with McCain, uh, there's been the case with Luger or Nunn or others. It often is from the Senate to make that happen. Now, uh, I think, um, as we both mentioned, Bush 41's sort of international reputation has sort of risen. He loses the election after all. So that's not such a great uh, sort of reward for his work. But what I'd also emphasize in his case was he wasn't just the last Cold War president. If you look at NAFTA, you look at the Uruguay Round, the creation of the WTO, APEC in Asia, the Global Climate Change Treaty, Mideast Peace Process. There's an irony here where he's setting the agenda that really defines much of the Clinton and the Bush 43 administration, even those people are sort of very, very different. Um, and there's, a, there's a, as I said, there's sort of an irony of that for a one-term president with a couple two-term presidents. But I guess what I'd also say kind of for the book is I, I also wanted to draw out some of the figures that actually I think are pretty darn impressive, but they've been lost to history. And so I want to recall them. And, and sometimes it's because they're quite successful, but the successes don't last. Uh, so I point to Charles Evans Hughes and the Washington Naval Conference, how he captures a moment in a sense to regain uh, authority for the president from the Senate, which has rejected sort of Wilson's treaty. He does it by picking up a political moment, connecting it to regional security issues. Uh, I have a chapter on Elihu Root, who's sort of one of the fathers of sort of international law. I mentioned the case of, of, uh, of, of Lincoln and Seward. So one of the things I try to do in this book is also bring to attention people we can learn from that otherwise might be lost in the midst of time. Yeah, and uh, let me ask you about um, some of the thematics of the book because in addition to the kinds of histories and profiles that you just described, there's a common theme and in, in it's both explicit and implicit and you can see it from page one all the way through. And that is that there's um, a certain pragmatic mean in the way American leaders have tended to, at least successful American leaders, have tended to deal with the world um, from the founders all the way through the present. And they return it again and again to what works, what works in a given situation, given a certain set of phenomena and facts and, and, and forces and leverage and, and all these other kinds of things. And, and this is not just a, an ad hoc, you know, look at everything. It's not a philosophical in that sense, because there is a, a pragmatic philosophy, right? I mean, it's a distinctly American philosophy of pragmatism. John Dewey and others sort of developed this. And, and you not only detect this, but sort of elevate this as, you know, a particularly good thing to uh, use as a, as, a, as a compass to try to determine how uh, American leaders and, and, dip, and dip, diplomats should sort of make decisions about doing things as opposed to some of either the very dogmatic ideological approaches or, you know, sort of a an academic superstructure that you might stick on top of a bunch of things. So tell us about pragmatism and, and kind of why that became the background theme uh, for you in the book. Well, I really use this from two dimensions. One is, I, I think probably everybody at this event uh, enjoys the discussion of intellectual frameworks uh, for foreign policy. But what I tried to share was that from, from my experience over, you know, number of decades, and then also, frankly, from my reading of history, that's not really how it works in fact. I mean, if you imagine you know, going into a new administration, you'll see the problem on your desk. There won't be a big discussion of realism, idealism, or offshore balancing, or different concepts of that. It's important to have those in mind, but the, the real question is kind of how do you get things done? And then this goes to the, 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 the pragmatic side, where I think it's not a, a formula for success. It's just an inclination for people to understand things. And that, and particularly working with bakers I did for eight years, the idea was always on what are you gonna accomplish? Not the theory, the results. 
um, not just sort of engaging in intellectual abstractions or, or constructs or dogmas or others, but sort of what, what can we really get done in the process? Um, and let me give you a practical sense of kind of how that works. Um, number one, it's as I used in their, our little German story, it's, it's an example of realities on the ground. It may be economic, it may be military, it may be technological, it may be votes. How do you make things happen? Second, you have to understand processes and institutions. How do they work? So in this story, I just relayed, I said we had to create a special process, uh, the, the two plus four process. How did we work the NATO process or the relations with the then EC? You need to understand positions of others. You relayed a little story about Baker doing debt negotiations and having a sense of how others were gonna be in the play of this. So this is people who are gonna support you and also kind of your foes. Timing, which we've discussed a lot, including when not to act. So in my chapter on JFK, I draw a little bit about sort of lessons about sometimes being a little bit too eager. Uh, the role of chance and contingency, which you have to expect if you're in these jobs and be flexible. And so at the end of the day, I'm partly also counseling, uh, you know, when you keep your diplomatic scorecard as historians or as sort of policy think tanks, you know, keep in mind there's a value here for imperfect results that still advance you in a far from perfect world. And maybe there's a certain optimism that we could use today in this in which it looks upon history as insights on how to do better as opposed to sort of timeless obstacles uh, over time. Um, you know, uh, Kissinger, who's one of, in a sense, uh, one of the, the key players that I reference a lot in this book, talks about history as the memory of states. And I think one of the lessons I'm trying to draw from history is that often it doesn't give you a clear analogy, but it gives you questions to ask under this idea of how do you get things done. Let me um, pick up a question that came in um, also from the audience and tie it to one of my own. And um, that is, how, how would you apply the sort of principles for pragmatism to US-China relations today? And the, the question from the audience specifically is, are there lessons from diplomatic history as we turn to this, the rise of China and the competition that's unfolding before our very eyes and how you think about that? Well, certainly, in fact, so let's start with a, a little bit of the historical context, which I, I cover some of it in this book. Um, I think there, there are three themes that have defined US-China relations. Uh, one, going back to uh, the ship, the Empress of China, which first visit, takes Gingxing from, from Appalachia to China in, I think, 1784-85, is the notion of China as the commercial dream, the great China market, always sort of shining just a little bit over, over the horizon. Although, to be fair, uh, China was our largest market for export growth for 15 years uh, before the Trump administration. Second is a recognition that China is going to play a larger role, certainly in the region and then the world. So remember, as the story I tell you about the Boxer Rebellion and the open door uh, point, the United States doesn't want China to fragment. Uh, Ella Harut says this would be a greatest disaster, sort of the breakup of Rome. But so how do you preserve uh, China as, as a force? In the 1920s, this negotiation I mentioned with uh, Charles Evans Hughes, the idea of you have a Republican China, how can, it, how can we strengthen it to make it a role? FDR wants China to be one of the four horsemen that sort of stabilizes the world afterwards, but China's too weak and the communists take over. Nixon uses, uh, and Kissinger use China in their diplomacy. And, and, and years later, I try to draw China in with the responsibilities of the international system with the responsible stakeholder idea. But there's a third thing, and that from the very start, uh, the United States has a missionary impulse towards China. And I mean real missionaries. <laughs> so the idea of converting China to Christianity is a powerful effect on the literature, the people who go into the foreign service, our concept of China. Then also along with that, with modern medicine, education, uh, when we get a uh, indemnity after the Boxer Rebellion, we turn around and we find Tsinghua University. The Chinese recognize this. I mean, this is part of the, that, that missionary spirit. And uh, when China decides that it doesn't necessarily want to be converted, uh, then Americans react with a sense of uh, hostility and fear and rejection. And so we have this pendulum in relations with China. 
So the starting point would be, let's recognize China for what it is, not necessarily what we would like it to be. That doesn't mean we don't engage it, but it means let's be practical about kind of where it is and what we can expect. Second, a theme throughout the book is you do this with allies and partners. With somebody, something so big and powerful as China today, you have to try to work with others and find forces within China that you can work with as well. Third, try to understand Chinese thinking. You don't necessarily have to agree with it. And this is a big piece about, I think Xi Jinping has actually taken steps to try to strengthen the Communist Party, in part because the fall of the Soviet Union, which we see as a historical event, casts a very long shadow in, in China today. Um, and then on the same practical sense, uh, results. What do we want to try to achieve? So, you know, we can throw verbal bombs at China, but what is it that we want to accomplish in particular areas? And this, this gets granular. So to be particular, take intellectual property rights. China has gradually built intellectual property courts that are actually doing pretty well in terms of finding for foreign companies, uh, but the penalties aren't high enough. So I'd focus on an issue like that. With forced technology transfer, which has been, was supposed to be prohibited when they came into the WTO, it's hard to get the evidence. But the reason a lot of these occur is the requirements for joint ventures. So I'd work on the joint venture issue. Uh, on a topic like Hong Kong, rather than just sanction individuals so we don't talk to each other anymore or block Chinese students, um, I would go the reverse way. I'd do what Britain is talking about and say, fine, let's, let's show the difference in systems. Let's people from Hong Kong uh, emigrate to the United States and show the benefits of freedom. So um, I'm not trying to suggest that all is hunky-dory with China, but going back to the responsible stakeholder, I wrote a piece in the national interest in March and April this year, where I simply reviewed the record of what had been accomplished with cooperation with China. China used to be one of the worst proliferators of weapons of mass destruction and missiles. It basically joins the regimes and actually tries to help us with Iran and North Korea. Um, on the economic side, China stopped manipulating its currency. Its current account surplus goes from 10% to zero. It had the best stimulus during the global uh, sort of financial crisis. Um, there's a lot of ways you can work with China on these topics, recognizing there's problems. I dealt with the Darfur portfolio when I was in the second Bush administration. I got the Chinese to be quite helpful <laughs> in trying to, to end the genocide and find some, some peace arrangements in Sudan. Even Taiwan, you know, um, you know in my own experience, uh, I worked to get uh, Taiwan accepted into APEC at the same time that China and Hong Kong did. I got Taiwan into the WTO the same time that China did. And frankly, there was a period I got uh, Taiwan accepted as an observer in the WHO process. Now, you can say maybe it's better to complain, but you know, isn't that a better set of results while trying to work with China on some of these issues? So I, I think we're now, frankly, in a pretty dangerous place. I think the relationship is in free fall. Every day you sort of see a new dimension. I, I certainly believe that's got a political dimension to it because the first three and a half years of the Trump administration was focused on a trade deal, which hasn't turned out so well anyway. And I think this is partly the political positioning. But there's no doubt that this is probably one of the few issues there's bipartisan feeling about China. So this will be a challenge for the new administration to wend its way based on some sense of history. And I hope pragmatic sense of how you work with allies uh, to to sort of at times deter China, at times sort of cooperate with China. How are you gonna deal with pandemic, climate change, economic recovery if you don't figure out a way to work with China? You mentioned sanctions in, in that last comment and there's a question here from Alice Wells um, about given the importance of trade, creating the platform for broader engagement and the stabilization relations as we were discussing before, what do you think about the extent to which Congress and the White House have taken up sanctions as their preferred tool of statecraft? Well, um, the sanctions policy starts with Thomas Jefferson because he, he, when he's unhappy with the British and French uh, in, uh, in 1807, he, he launches an embargo. He, I'm gonna teach him, I'm not gonna allow any of our goods to go to Europe. Well, it didn't work out so well. And in fact, the Northeastern states almost split off. But ever since that time, we've uh, used sanctions, uh, uh, sometimes trade, increasingly financial. <clears throat> they can be a useful tool, but in the spirit of pragmatic diplomacy, I would try to argue, how, how are you going to use the tool to achieve something as opposed to just express your frustration, which you've often seen in the congressional context? 
So I'm not against uh, penalizing people for uh, theft or espionage or other issues. Uh, but as I use the example of China, you know, I, I just wonder where are we going with this, where we sort of say, oh, certain Chinese officials or Hong Kong officials can't come to the United States. And then they say certain Americans can't come. Even the, the closing of the consulate, you have to ask yourself, if the Houston consulate were a nest of spies, wouldn't the smart thing to do from an intelligence point of view is be to watch what they're doing, who they're being with, go after them? Or are we trying to kind of sort of further decouple uh, the relationship here? I, I'll close on this part though. I think the, the toughest issue is going to be in the technology space. And in part, you know, China itself led to a splinter net, stopped a lot of American information and technology firms from operating in China. I think you're going to see a similar response already in the case of the U.S. But the issue I see now playing out is data. Because every business that I'm associated with, the big data, how it's used is going to be a key part of their strategy. This goes beyond telecommunications to fields like life sciences. So there was a very active life science community between China and the United States based on Chinese study in the United States, went back to China, formed venture capital funds. If we can't figure out a way to defend data or at least understand the risks of data in a field like life sciences, we're gonna cut off innovation totally with China. Maybe people feel that's the right thing to do. I just urge them to understand the potential costs and dangers of doing that. And um, we have a question in about the intelligence community, a good one. Um, in general, how the maturation of the intelligence community over the years has shaped the broader arc of Americans' foreign policy throughout history? Well, um, <laughs> I guess one of the first examples I find is in the chapter on the Louisiana Purchase, where <clears throat> we're trying to find out whether Spain has given the territory back to, to France. Uh, and Madison, uh, after a few different diplomatic notes, sort of finally decides to pay somebody to get the treaty from either the Spanish or the French sort of embassy. Uh, uh, and indeed, uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition was in some ways uh, an intelligence effort uh, uh, that, that uh, Jefferson launches to understand what this vast territory is about uh, even before, before he bought it. Um, obviously, the intelligence community becomes most active in the sort of the post-1945 period, although frankly, the signals intelligence, as we've learned, is quite important uh, in, in World War II. Um, I think it's always a challenge uh, to integrate intelligence effectively. And one, one, uh, I, I respect the intelligence professions, but now and then they can have a role in the system, uh, particularly at times with Congress, that can, can make things uh, kind of hard for people to act on independent judgments. So um, I'm thinking, for example, in 1989, uh, the intelligence community's judgments about Gorbachev were not those that we exercised at the State Department. Bob Gates kind of represented more of that reserve view. And just to give you a pragmatic sense, uh, President Bush brings in Baker and Scowcroft and others, and they bring in some academic and intelligence experts to talk about, is this just a period of, of Russia, Soviet Union gaining its breath, or is it a fundamental change? And back, Baker says, look, this is academic theology. He said, you can make an argument both ways. What we need to do is try to use this time to put as many things in our basket as we can, and if Gorbachev is serious, to try to help him. And then obviously, in the case of the second Gulf War, intelligence, how it's used, the role of the intelligence community and tenet is very critical in terms of, of the judgment that President Bush makes. So I guess what I would say is there's, there's a benefit to having people in these positions of power that know the benefits, but also the limits of intelligence. And I'm using this more in the information analytical side than the operational side of intelligence agencies, which is a, a whole different story. Um, but I think what these stories will partly give you a better sense of is how decision makers have to factor these in in real time and the questions that they would like the intelligence to help them answer. Well, there's another aspect of this that's not intelligence per se, but you know, more informal, um, but you have a contrast in there between the way that TR negotiated the end of the Russo-Japanese War and what Wilson did when he was making these repeated attempts to try to bring some sort of stop or mediate or something in Europe uh, during World War I. And TR had this sprawling network, personal network, 
of people all over the world in Europe and he knew Russians. If he had gone to Harvard with Baron Kaneko and he could just talk to him and ask him kind of what the Japanese were thinking about things. And then when Wilson comes in, he just doesn't have that international network and the uh, the American diplomatic corps was not big enough and sprawling enough to be able to provide the kind of on the ground information. So he sends Colonel House out to Europe to sort of sniff around and, and, and find, see what he can find out and things like that. But that lack of information about wh who, what position, who was revealing their positions and things like that was a huge impediment to Wilson getting anything moving. Well, um, draws together a couple of themes. Remember under pragmatism, I emphasized getting information about your opponents and others. And so you can factor this in with processes and institutions. <clears throat> but I really enjoyed writing the Teddy Roosevelt chapter because many people associate Roosevelt with San Juan Hill or use of power in the Great White Fleet. He was actually, as you noted, quite an effective mediator uh, in the Russo-Japanese War and in what was called the first Moroccan crisis, which probably very few Americans know about, but was one of those incidents just like the Balkans a few years later that could have led to a conflagration of, of Europe. Um, and as you mentioned, at this time, the American diplomatic corps was, was not a professional corps. Uh, and Roosevelt, however, in a sense, enlists the German ambassador of the United States, the French ambassador of the United States, one of his groomsmen who was a British representative in St. Petersburg. And then he also positioned some of his diplomatic corps to kind of maneuver this, this system. And Wilson, in contrast, I think is, as, as sort of a political scientist, comes up with visions. He's actually pretty good on the tactics. I, I, my chapter on this one is sort of the entry of war from 1914 to 17. But what you're referring to is that there's a, a book that's gonna come out by Phil Zellico next year about whether an effort by Wilson to mediate late in 1916 could have avoided the last two years of World War I and imagine how history would have changed. And what you can see in that story is that Wilson doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know who to seek the information from. He doesn't know how to test ideas. He, he can give a speech, but he says to the warring parties, look, put your positions out in public. Well, what are they gonna do? I mean, they, if they put out uh, something too small, they'll be criticized. If they put out something big, it won't go anywhere. How do you test those sort of things behind uh, the scene? So I think there's a larger point that I developed in writing all these stories, which is the team around the president also matters. Because as you said, he got no help from the Secretary of State and he got no help from House. Uh, and so he was pretty much off on his own. And he, I call this the operational art of diplomacy. So, and it's quite important, very rarely known. It's not just talking about the strategy or the tactics, how you conduct the meeting but how you connect the dots in the way as we talked about with German unification. All right, I'm gonna ask you one last question and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up here. We could go on for a long time. It's a fascinating conversation about a, a tremendous volume here. Um, but a, a question from Alison Browning. Um, did you learn anything in your research for the book that surprised you or, and this would be very unusual for anyone in Washington, changed how you thought about something? <laughs> Well, some of this will get a little obscure, uh, but uh, I was interested in uh, the Louisiana Purchase, whether Jefferson was lucky or good. And so I delved into some of these practical steps of how he took. Uh, and, and I concluded he was both, but I think one should also not underestimate uh, his, his skill as a diplomat. I call him the futurist. He also is, he has some very grand ideas, but he also needs his team. So for example, when the prospect of buying all of Louisiana comes forward uh, in 1803, he's got Monroe on the scene. And he was lucky because Jefferson probably would have been uncertain what to do with this. Monroe wasn't as smart as Jefferson, but he was decisive about making the decision. When they send the agreement back, at first Jefferson's very pleased, but then he says, oh, given my limited view of the Constitution, I need to have a constitutional amendment. And Madison says, no, 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 let's not do that. Uh, who knows what Napoleon will do next? And, and for a wonderful sense of irony, they, require, they use Hamilton's financial system to buy this. If they didn't have Hamilton's financial system, they couldn't have done the purchase. So there are a number of those uh, throughout. Um, I, I look at the John Hay open door. For those of you that study diplomatic history, this, this was often used by Cannon and others as an example of kind of how, how Americans are dreamy and talk about stuff but don't have reality. But I use this as an example of a case where um, 
what Hay didn't have uh, a huge number of equities or influence, but he takes the commonality of positions, he kind of expands on them a bit, and pulls it all together with the weak gravity of international cooperation in the third class. So it's an example of how you can advance an agenda in a, in a modest way without necessarily winning wars or, or uh, invasions in the process. And then um, I, I, I mentioned uh, the Charles Evans Hughes. I always had a suspicion that Charles Evans Hughes was actually quite a shrewd uh, political and strategist leader. And I think the key in that story is not seen as just as naval arms control, but seen it as part of a regional uh, security structure. And then with John F. Kennedy, um, I described him as the crisis manager. I guess what I affirmed in the Kennedy case was um, the Kennedys made a lot of mistakes along the way. In some ways, their behavior sets up Vietnam. But I think that uh, uh, Kennedy showed an ability to learn a lot. And that, that shows up in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I guess the last one I'll mention is, I do have a chapter on LBJ. There are some failures. And because I focus on the 1964, early 65 era about deciding to take over the conflict with the military, with US ground troops. And I try to apply my analytical framework to help people for the future. So I come up with sort of six categories or six things that, that, that I think went wrong. And frankly, those six things would not be a bad list to use with a lot of issues today. Fantastic. The book uh, is America and the World. It's, uh, well, my green screen thing is, I'll just read the title, My America and the World, the History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy by Robert B. Zellick. Bob, thanks for joining us today. This is um, fantastic. Congratulations on the book. Thanks to everybody else for joining this conversation. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. Appreciate it. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.